minister to our kids in our churches and uh, keep them in the church and get them involved. But I do count it a privilege to be here. So as we continue in this, the story, um, today as uh, we saw in the clip, it comes to chapter 7 and I always find that the clip takes a bit of uh, the uh, limelight away from what I'm going to say because it sort of encapsulates it very quickly uh, into the message, what's coming. But we're going to look through the book of Joshua and Joshua chapter 1 opens with these words. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Now let me ask you, have you ever had to step into the shoes of a much loved and highly respected person, maybe a boss? Um, I know it happens in ministry, in some churches, um, and uh, as you step into someone's uh, who's been there for a long time, been very loved as a minister, the new person coming in can find it very difficult. You can often face unfair comparisons. Oh, he didn't do it like you are, or you didn't don't do it like he did. You can cop unfair criticism every time you do something different to the way the previous leader did it. And some people don't even get on board refusing in some cases to show respect and allegiance to the new leader or new minister. That can happen in the workplace as well, as the new boss steps up into the roles, but often in ministry, after a long-term ministry. So stepping into the shoes of a much-loved and highly respected person is so often a very difficult thing to do. So can you imagine the challenges that Joshua had to face? Moses is now dead and God has appointed Joshua as the new leader of the Israelites. You know, Moses had led the nation of Israel for over 40 years through a very difficult time. He was an incredible leader who God used to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. Moses, to many of us, is you know, one of the most absolutely greatest heroes of the Bible stories and uh, the truths in it. But remember, Moses too failed. Remember that he didn't take notice of the two spies and so sent the whole nation on a journey around the desert for 40 years. So to me, that's a great encouragement you know, when I fail, I know that I'm not the alone in that. But it must have been incredibly difficult for Joshua to step into the shoes of Moses and become the leader of Israel. But at the end of Joshua chapter 1, there is something that is said there, written there, that I find very interesting. Verses 16 to 18. Then they answered Joshua... 
Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. What wonderful people. Only may the Lord, your God, be with you as he was with Moses. Get this. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? I just wonder how things like that might have gone in some of the churches I've served in if the elders said, Clinton, well, whoever rebels against your word and does not do what you say, doesn't do what you obey, don't obey your words, whatever you command them, they'll be put to death. Just an interesting hypothetical, I guess. <laughs> Sounds a bit harsh these days, doesn't it? Don't think we'll get away with it. So after the death of Moses, Joshua has been appointed as the new leader of the Israelites. And Joshua's first big test is Jericho. And God has said to Jericho, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Four times God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. But before the Israelites can take possession of the promised land, they must defeat and destroy the city called Jericho. The spies are sent out to check out the lay of the land. The nation of Israel crosses the Jordan on dry ground, as, even though it was in flood season, as God held back the waters, and they set up camp at Gilgal, not that far from Jericho. Jericho is a very well fortified city. It was surrounded by an enormous wall. Now, archaeologists have discovered that the surrounding Jericho was this wall was not only a six metre high retaining wall, but on top of that there was a stone wall that was built that was eight metres high and two metres thick. Think about that for a minute. This means that altogether the wall measured 14 metres high. Jericho wasn't just a city, it was a fortress. But God said to Joshua in Joshua 6.2, I have, get that, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings and its fighting men. Now think about this for a moment. If you were Joshua, what sort of battle plan would you have? What kind of strategies would you put into action? What kind of weapons would you have used to smash through those enormous walls? Well, as we read the story of Joshua, we see that God chooses a very different battle plan than I think any one of us would expect. And he uses three weapons that I'm not sure anyone in their right mind would ever consider using to bring down the walls and to defeat one of the most powerful cities of the time. Let's have a look at God's battle plan. Weapon number one is a prostitute. 
what? <laughs> How can that be a weapon? Joshua 2.1, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly spent two, sent two spies. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. How does this make sense? Our immediate reaction is that surely a prostitute could never be used by God. But this is who God used in his battle plan to bring down Jericho. Now when you really stop and think about it, a prostitute was the perfect person for God to use. After all, who's going to question why there are a couple of guys coming and going from a prostitute's house? The perfect cover. Also, take note of what happened when the king of Jericho discovers that there were spies in the city. In verse 3 it says, So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house? That could possibly be a pretty long list. But who was willing to speak up? Who was willing to be a witness that there were guys there? Uh, um, uh, well, I, I was visiting a prostitute last night uh, and I, I saw these two guys there. No one's going to be a witness to that, are they? They're not going to admit to that. But Joshua was getting ready to lead the Israelites into the greatest battle they'd ever fought and God's ally on the inside was a prostitute. James 2 speaks about our righteousness being displayed through our actions. The example he uses is from Abraham. James 2, 21 and 23. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Abraham, one of the greatest heroes of the faith, is a tremendous example of righteousness. But listen to what James says next in verse 25. In the same way. In the same way as Abraham. So in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? We must never underestimate who God can use. We must never underestimate how a person can be used by God, including ourselves including ourselves. A preacher by the name of Gene Apple uh, once said, God uses unlikely people to accomplish the unthinkable if they will trust God, even when the story doesn't make sense. That way, God is the one who gets the glory. Do you get that? God uses unlikely people 
to accomplish the unthinkable if they will trust God, even when the story doesn't make sense, that way God is the one who gets the glory. That's amazing, I think. Weapon number two is a flint knife. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this was why he did so. It's great that there's an explanation. To those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, they died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Well, praise God for that. <laughs> How in the world is circumcising every one of your soldiers a great battle strategy? Reading through the book of Joshua, you can make, you can, you can sort of wonder if God is the worst battle strategist, not the best. If you want to see some extremely poor war strategies, just have a look at the Gallipoli campaign, you know, in our own history. History tells us that the whole campaign was one failed strategy after another. But even so, there's not one single documentary that mentions a battle strategy as crazy as circumcising all the soldiers before getting into battle. Surely a good battle plan would rely on having a physically strong army of able-bodied soldiers to fight the battle. So why take a flint knife and perform a surgical procedure on a very sensitive part of a man's body that has all the men laid up in pain for a week, maybe two weeks or more? We need to remember the very important symbolism of circumcision. Circumcision is about full dedication to God. God commanded that all Jewish males were circumcised as an act of dedication and as a permanent reminder that they were different to all the other nations. They were set apart by God for God. Listen to the words from Colossians 2, 9 to 12. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, appropriate for today, isn't it? And raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So physical circumcision is no longer a requirement for those who follow Christ. But spiritual circumcision is still something that is vital for us all. Spiritual circumcision, circumcision is that act of setting ourselves apart from this world for God by fully surrendering ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
in many ways that is shown in our baptism. See, God's battle plan isn't to have a huge, powerful, well-armed army, but rather one that is committed and surrendered and dedicated to him. Weapon number three is a trumpet. Now, if I was planning this battle against the city of Jericho, the Bible would probably read something like this. Battle Commander Clinton Wardle said to Joshua, Arm every man with a sharp sword, a spear, a mace, a dagger, any other weapon they can carry. Get the strongest men to take battering rams and catapults and flaming arrows. We're going to take the city. And the Lord brought magical weapons from the future called cannons and they raised Jericho to the ground. Sounds a bit familiar to what's happening overseas now, doesn't it? A bit sad. But instead, the Bible reads like this. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the walls of the city will collapse. Do you think this made sense to Joshua? Maybe saying, pardon? Do you think that none of Joshua's men questioned any of this? Do you think that as they marched around the city of Jericho blowing their trumpets that no one thought that this was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever done? Yet that wall came down and the Israelites won the battle. Remember what I said before? God uses unlikely people to accomplish the unthinkable if they will trust God even when the story doesn't make sense. That way, God is the one who gets the glory. So if the army had won the battle just by their own force, by their own strategy, then they would get the glory. This is the only way that God gets the glory. And God knew that. And he knew how important that would be for their whole future. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, not by, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So the story of Joshua and Jericho, yes, it's a wonderful story that reveals to us the incredible power of God, the God that we serve. So what's the take-home message for us? That's the lower story. That's what happened on the earth. What's the upper story? What's God doing in this? To me, the take-home message, well, I think there's a bit there. I'm sure that there are many things that maybe God has even been saying to you right now. But I want to finish with this challenge to each of us. Don't measure the walls before you by comparing their size to you. Rather, measure those walls by comparing their size to God. Don't measure the walls before you, whatever they are, 
by comparing their size to you, rather measure those walls by comparing their size to God. Let your story be about God's bigness. Let your story be about a God who is bigger than your fear, who is bigger than your guilt, who is bigger than your failure, who is bigger than your mistakes, who is bigger than your sin. Say, God is bigger than any wall that stands before us, that separates us from God. And in his power and might and by his spirit, that wall will come down. Let's pray. Wondrous and loving God, we thank you that we don't do life alone, or we don't have to. Father, we thank you that your spirit is in us as we have Christ in us. Father, thank you that we do not have to worry so much about what we have to handle, what we have to do, because by your spirit you help us. And Father, I pray that as we look at the story of Joshua and Jericho, that we would realise that the walls that we face, those barriers that are in our lives separating us from you, can be brought down, can be defeated, can be crushed when we turn to you, when we take on board what you have done in our lives through Christ. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the fact that we are your children. You love us so much. And Father, I pray that as we face life day by day, in those difficult times, help us to turn to you, not our own understanding. Help us to come to you for the right battle plan to overcome our problems, overcome our hurts, our sin, or whatever. And so, Father, I pray that each and every one of us would know the victory we have in Christ. It's already ours. Just as your word shows that God told Joshua that you had already given them the victory before they even got there, you do the same for us. Help us to hang on to that victory in Christ, no matter what we face. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dad. Thank you so much. Hey, what a blessing. Um, you know, I love that concept of...